0: Hello fellow time travellers, welcome to the first stop on our journey around the world this time. After the love letter to the British Isles and a hundred special places, now it's a journey around the whole world and a hundred special moments. Before we get started, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who helps to support the making of this podcast by signing up to my Patreon site. This podcast is and always will be free, but the Patreon site is the one that kind of makes the other things possible. The Patreon site is full of history, comment, and my personal philosophy on life. To join and be another supporter, simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver, and sign up. And I hope you won't regret it. I'm sure you won't. Okay, strap yourselves into the time machine as we hurtle back in time to a moment when myths, stories and the human experience were carved into blocks of clay. Recorder, mic, action. To take her over, to possess her, to destroy her, to make her one. A temple dedicated to the goddess of love, beauty and war. People collaborating, specialising and working together. A city of great wealth and sophistication, full of gold, silver and gems. Letters and words are charmed into existence as storytelling begins to be written down. A moment of creativity, composing and conjuring beautiful hymns into being. The world's first named poet makes her mark, and civilization is born. Endeavouring to understand what has gone before, in order to help protect our future. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world.
1: Hi Neil. Great to be setting off on another journey together. Thanks for having me along. I'd like to start by asking where you've decided to begin your history of the world.
0: It's great to have you too, Paul, and all our fellow time travellers along for the ride. Yeah, well, it was a conundrum. where to begin a story of the world. There are so many beginnings, aren't there? But this is my story, and I've chosen to begin it with a woman of words, a woman of great power and intellect, we're going back in time 4,300 years to the grand city of Ur in Mesopotamia to meet the world's first known poet, Enheduanna. It's the very beginning of, uh, of my story of the world, Paul. The story of the world that seems to make sense to me. is one of those words that, depending on your outlook on life, it's either a, a source of great boredom and tedium Or or else, if you're like me, like us, it's a gateway, uh, a doorway opening into a whole world of of hopefully understanding based on paying attention to what's happened in the past.
1: Yeah, a lot of people do talk about being put off history, don't they?
0: Yeah, it's just, I mean, at, at school I was hopeless at certain things. I was hopeless at maths. I wasn't good at the sciences, certainly not the hard sciences like physics and chemistry. I had a bit of a, an ear for biology, and that was a subject that I did right to the end. I did, you know, higher biology, but I did higher history and higher English. We're all wired up differently, and ultimately, I think, later life has shown me that I'm inspired by stories. I can get into, funnily enough, I've realised for a long time that I can get into physics and I can get into chemistry if it's delivered to me like a story, I'm that simple it's the format if you start talking to me in a way that brings an element of storytelling into it then I can get it I remember listening to something online years ago a physicist a physicist from back in the in the 70s and he was talking about the quantum world quantum mechanics and so on which I think if I'd been confronted with that at school I'd just have been lost given the way that, that the teachers tended to approach subjects when I was at school, but this guy, when he spoke, he said, um, and he brought in an element of storytelling, he said, a lot of us imagined, or, 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 or our scientists imagined for the longest time that the world was made of small things, and if you looked at the small things, they were made of smaller things, and if you looked at the smaller things, they were made of smaller things again. So it was all a, was all a process of, of big, small, smaller, smallest going down. But then they realised with, the, with the advent of quantum theory uh, that actually it was about a world of probabilities. It, it was about things that could happen, might happen, were capable of happening. And, and he said, and this was the bit that got me, he said, we exist, we as a species, we exist in a King Midas-like predicament. And that we are always unable to feel the true texture of reality because everything we touch turns to matter. And that's not really reality. That's just our perception of reality. Anyway, you know, I'm digressing dreadfully there. But what, what all I mean to illustrate is the idea that once you, once you bring in analogies and, and other associations, these subjects start to open up for me. And then I can be almost tricked into the heart of the matter. So anything that was stories, English, history, things that were obviously about storytelling appealed to me. And they go in, that that sort of information goes into my head and I can remember it. So what I wanted to embark upon was telling a story of the world. My ultimate dream was to be able to tell the story of the world. And in order to do that, I thought I'll, I'll highlight a number of moments, bright flashes of light or inspiration other people's bright flashes of light or inspiration, not mine. And I thought if I just stitch a hundred of those bright lights together, uh, it'll tell a story. History comes from the Greek, actually. It's, it's a Greek historia. It means inquiry. You know, it's an attempt to understand. So if historia is a Greek word, then it comes up through Latin. And by the time you get to, say, Middle English, there isn't any dis- differentiation or distinction made in, in Middle English between story and history. They both mean a narrative record of past events. And so that's, that's good for me. That's what I'm after, is a narrative record of past events. And so how do you, where do you begin that story? And so it seemed straightforwardly to make sense to begin with the first of the storytellers, the first people who had writing it's an arbitrary distinct, It's an arbitrary point, really. I'm an archaeologist, and there's a long story of humankind running for millions of years before anybody seems to pick up a stick and make marks in the dust or make marks in wet clay that can then be kept. But from that moment on, there's history, if you like, because people are keeping a record, a permanent record. It, really, it starts out in the most utilitarian way the the first things that were written down were probably lists of crops you know people keeping track on the amount of wheat or the amount of barley uh, and maybe the amount of money that was exchanged for the wheat so it's accounts it's dreary bureaucratic records seem to be the first thing first things that were written down rather than any prose or poetry But the advent of writing seems to me the place to start the story, and so yes, so I, I begin it. I begin with a moment in the very early days of writing, and, and it's definitely important to say that by that point, which is well, it's, it, it's about. I'm going to start the story, but around about four thousand three hundred years ago. we're looking at kind of five thousand years here in this in this season two, but of course. By the time you get to the first people writing things down, we've come a long way. That that has to be understood. You know, the species and variations on the theme of what it is to be human have been around for millions of years by that point. And when it comes to, say, storytelling, obviously there's there's art before there's writing. You know, there's the cave art. You know, if you go into Lascaux and Altamira and places like that in France, Chauvet Cave, and you see the, the, the wonderful Illustrations of, of animals and other symbols and geometric patterns, at some level, that's storytelling. That's story. And, you know, Picasso said after Altamira, all his decadence. You know, and he was one of the greatest artists that there ever was. And he looked on at that ancient art from 30 odd thousand years ago and thought they had it cracked then wasn't vetted by Leonardo or Michelangelo or Picasso, so there was eloquent storytelling there in in, in that rock art. But I decided, and it's it's arbitrary, but I decided to start my story with the first named poet, and, and that first named poet is a woman called Enheduanna, and she, around four thousand three hundred years ago, was the high priestess of a temple. In the city of Ur, in the civilization recorded as Sumer, in the land of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means the land between the rivers, that's the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, in what we regard as the Middle East. And Sumer was one of the civilizations that was established in that part of the world. And Ur was a city. Uh, and by the time Inheduana was in her temple there, it was a place of great sophistication. And civilization, when Ur was excavated by British archaeologists, as it turned out in the 1920s and 30s, they found gold and they found silver and they found gems that the, the people, there were artisans and craftsmen who were making and glorifying all sorts of items with precious metals and precious stones. Uh, and they were also recording the written word. And we know that because the archaeologists found great masses of clay tablets into which had been impressed a language. Each letter, if you like, or, or each word, was assembled by using the end of a reed that had been cut through with a sharp knife to leave a triangular-shaped section. And if you, they realised that if you press that into the wet clay in all manner of different patterns and combinations, they created an alphabet, and archaeologists and linguists call it cuneiform, Cuneus is the Latin for a wedge, and that that triangular shape at the end of a cut reed has a wedge shape. So they, they established an alphabet of cuneiform, and so the archaeologists found hundreds and hundreds of clay tablets into which scribes had written with the cuneiform language. <laughs> And some of it was was hymns and poems, depends what you want to call them. Hymns and poems of praise to gods and goddesses. And Heduanna was one of those who composed some of the hymns 4,300 years ago. And we call her the first-named poet because she wrote herself into the hymns that she created. Sometimes she would have been recording, or having recorded in her name, hymns that were already old but she also created dozens of her own and she wrote herself into them. So she was, she was writing in the first person about, about what the goddess that she served meant to her and the effect that being in the presence of the goddess had on her. So she's writing in a personal style and we don't know a huge amount about Inheduanna but, but what, what details we do have are enough to sketch in a life and it seems to me that if the story of the world has to start somewhere, there's good reasons for starting it with Inheduana. The high priestess who created hymns of praise for the goddess Inanna. Inanna was the goddess of lots of things, love, sex, war, beauty. And she she had a, a male deity that was her husband or her partner, who was Nana. But Inheduana certainly wrote hymns in praise of Inanna, who was a fairly terrifying and impressive deity, whose presence was a constant feature in, uh, in Hedwana's consciousness. And we, and we can tell that from the way, the way that she wrote about her. Rising on fearsome wings, you rush to destroy our land, raging like thunderstorms, howling like hurricanes, screaming like tempests, thundering, raging, ranting, drumming, whiplashing whirlwinds. Men falter at your approaching footsteps. Tortured dirges scream at your lyre of despair. And that's a poem called Lament to the Spirit of War. You get a sense, you know, that that Inanna was not somebody to take for granted or overlook. She was a serious presence. Mesopotamia was was a landscape, Ur was a sumer. These were landscapes of extremes dry and dusty for a lot of the time, winds blowing dust around, choking dust and sandstorms, and at other times, torrential downpours, which could become floods, which would cause rivers to burst their banks, which would cause chaos. It's important to contemplate what reality of life was like for those people of Ur in Sumer. They had come together to try and make order out of chaos. The landscape was too tough for one person or even one family to command alone. The only way to to get a handle on the place was to come together in large numbers. So tribes had to unify so that projects might be undertaken by hundreds of people at a time to make thousands upon thousands of mud bricks that would dry in the sun so that great walls could be built, to keep rivers in check, to create levees so that there was some hope of protecting the fields from, from sudden floods and the rest. In temperate Europe, it was different. The soft, fertile soils there, across vast stretches of the European interior, lent themselves to being cultivated. Once people had adopted the technology of farming, the European interior was covered in f- in swathes of fertile soil and the climate was kindly, so that a family, an extended family of mum, dad and the grandparents and a few kids could create a few fields and grow crops and, and be subsistence farmers in their own right. But that, in a, a counterintuitive way, worked against the establishment of what we would regard as civilization because people were able to remain isolated from one another without the necessity to come together and collaborate on big ideas. And so, civilization as we would understand it came later in Europe. In Mesopotamia, however, because the landscape was so challenging, people had to work together in large numbers and that fostered civilization because. Once the hundreds or even the thousands of people had laid out fields, had begun cultivating crops in large quantity, then there was surplus. And out of the surplus, it was possible to pay people who didn't have to work the land. So imagine you would have a strong man, a king, a warlord, who gathers around him some other hard men, other warriors. So they create a stability and they create a, an environment in which the farmers can get on with growing the crops. And then when the crops are harvested, they're centralised around the strong man and his warriors. And then there's enough to pay for other people to not be farmers. So you get specialists, you get tradespeople, you get craftspeople. And before long, you've got people who can depend on a supply of food and they can turn their hands to... Making things, making beautiful things, building great works, building the walls, building the temples. So, the hardship of a tricky testing landscape actually fostered the first civilizations because they had to do that. They had to come together to get anything done. And by coming together to get something done, eventually they got a lot done. And what you've got also is a, a, a civilization that's aware of the vicissitudes, the, the realities of life. They know that from time to time storms will come, floods will come. And those forces in their lives are understood before long as spirits, gods, and goddesses that you want to keep on the right side of. And so all manner of things seem to be the manifestations of gods, like the flood. The storm, the tempest, the wind, night and day, light and dark, the moon, the sun, all of these things, in the presence of people who have got the time, having been freed from the necessity to do just labouring work around the farms and the fields, they can start thinking bigger thoughts. And so eventually you've got temples dedicated, keeping... Populations of priests and priestesses whose endeavour is to stay on the right side of the gods and the goddesses, to offer them sacrifices, to pray to them, to create hymns that might be chanted or sung in their honour. And so all of that enables specialisation, which eventually gives you specialists like priests and priestesses, and so you've got religion. and religion would be would be kept close to the strong man. You know, the strong man who has the warriors would also want to be the one that people associated with mediating with the gods. So he would employ the priests and the priestesses. And that's what you've got in the case of Enheduanna. Enheduanna seems to be either the daughter of Sargon the Great or somebody who was important to Sargon the Great for some other reason. Sargon the Great came from Akkad He was the founder of the Akkadian Empire and around the time we're talking about 4,300 years ago he's in control of the civilization of Sumer. So Sumer is within the Akkadian Empire and he's got people like Enheduanna in temples that he has ordered to be built servicing the gods. That's who Enheduanna is. That's the context in which she exists. So now we've got an individual like Inheduana, I mean, whatever Inheduana's whatever mother called her when she was a child, it wasn't Inheduana. Inheduana is a name that comes together from three words En, which means high priestess, Hedu, which means something like ornament or something or someone that's there for the glorification of the gods, i.e., a priestess, and An is short for Inanna, and that's the goddess she served. So Inheduana. It's not a name, it's more of a title. You know, she's the high priestess whose job it is to glorify the goddess Inanna. So you don't actually know her name. But in the context of the temple, in Ur, in the civilization of Sumer, she was in how did we?
1: How did we read her poems?
0: Cuneiform was cracked like a code people studied it there's large quantities of it and people were able to piece together what cuneiform must mean we know about enheduanna because she's there in the in the poems and hymns that she composed that she created from scratch but amongst other things that were found at ur during excavations there was a a disc an alabaster disc about the size of a dinner plate about 10 inches across and on the front of it, there are four figures Four human beings depicted And on the back, it describes who they are One of them is in Heduanna. Another is her hairdresser Ilum Palilis Another is her scribe The one who did the writing on her behalf Sagadu And the fourth is her estate manager, Ada Wow So, right there you've got a picture of her that she's got staff. You know, she's someone with, with a team around her, so she, she doesn't even do the writing herself. She's got scribes, at least one of whom, let's imagine, is her favourite, Sagadu. She composes, she dictates, and Sagadu writes it down. So already you begin to get a glimpse of her. We know that at that time in, in Ur, uh, in Sumer, both men and women wore clothes, first of all, made of wool in the earlier periods, Later on, clothes made of flax. Both men and women wore like a, a shawl covering their top half, but with one uh, shoulder exposed, and long skirts, floor length. So they were covered up apart from one shoulder. It's hard to say, but it, it may have been the case that, out of honouring the old ways, let's imagine that the Inheduana dressed in wool, dressed in the older style. This is a story about moments. And in the moment, I just like to imagine, to picture in my head, in Heduanna, in all her finery, she would have been styled and dressed to look distinctive. Uh, she had a hairdresser. You can imagine if you live in a place where there's winds blowing dust around all the time, if you want to look your best, you probably need someone to stay on top of your, your hairstyle. <laughs> She probably wore some kind of headdress, maybe a crown of some, of some description. We know also that Inanna and Nana and the rest of the gods and goddesses were served by both men and women, priests and priestesses, and they seemed to have dressed in a deliberately androgynous fashion. So they didn't dress to be identifiable as men or women. And there was also an understanding that Inanna the goddess, had the power to change men into women, to change women into men. So so there was some kind of blurring of the way in which the priests and priestesses dressed and carried themselves so that it might not have been apparent at first glance what sex was being dealt with. But they spent all of their time, all of their efforts and all of their energy dedicated to her service. And as I say... What makes Inhediwana so memorable is the fact that she writes about her relationship. She was the only one that seems to have been allowed, perhaps, or or who dared to describe her relationship with the goddess. Great Queen of Queens, issue of a holy womb for righteous divine powers, greater than your own mother, wise and sage, lady of all the foreign lands life force of the teeming people I will recite your holy song true goddess fit for divine powers your splendid utterances are magnificent deep-hearted good woman with a radiant heart I will enumerate your divine power for you so she's recording in a hymn that will be recited long after she's gone that she is there that she has a relationship with the goddess Your divinity is resplendent in the land. My body has experienced your great punishment. Lament, bitterness, sleeplessness, distress, separation, mercy, compassion, care, lenience and homage are yours and to cause flooding, to open hard ground and to turn darkness into light. It's powerful stuff. And so we know as well we know as well that she was she served the temple for something like 40 years in total which is that's a long life if 40 years of it could be dedicated to service in the temple at some point after the death of Sargon who may have been her father but although a lot of a lot of historians dispute that but she was there at Sargon's request But after Sargon was gone, she was still the high priestess, and by then the kingdom was ruled by Rimush, her brother. And there was some kind of coup by a warlord called Lugal'ana, and Enheduana was driven from the temple at that point. She actually had to make a run for it. She even writes about that. Me, who once sat triumphant, he has driven out of the sanctuary. Like a swallow, he made me fly from the window. My life is consumed. He stripped me of the crown appropriate for the high priesthood. There's another reason why we suspect that in her moment sat there with, or standing or walking the floor while Sagadu wrote down her words, she wore a crown appropriate for the high priesthood. You know, so there are there are bits and pieces scattered through her work that give us glimpses of what she was like. So that that's the moment that I think about. I think about her dressed, with her shawl, with one shoulder exposed, with the long skirt, clothes made of wool, her hair styled, a crown on her head, and somewhere around her, there's a scribe or scribes, and maybe those people who also take care of her, her estate manager, her hairdresser, are there in case she needs them. You know, after 4,300 years, I think that's still a vivid image to carry. It's still a thought of a real person. So she was driven out of Ur Driven out of the temple for a while But the usurper didn't last long And he was driven out And Enheduanna returned to continue And the tablets that were recovered In the 20s and 30s They weren't the work of Sagadu They weren't the originals And in a way it's more important That they are what they are Because they're copies of copies of copies The stories that she recorded, the hymns that she composed, were regarded as important enough that they had to be copied and recopied, handed down through the generations for hundreds of years. Her words were recognised as being of significance. There are even those who dispute that Inheduana wrote the works that bear her name, in precisely the same way that there are those who have said that Shakespeare didn't write his plays... It's a fascinating parallel Thousands of years apart There are those who have said No, no, these were not They're not by Enheduanna Or at least they're not all by Enheduanna The same sort of doubt was cast over her work As was cast over Shakespeare And that might be the fate of the truly great poets The truly great creators of new work That after you're gone People doubt that it's your hand on the work But that body of work that she created It influenced Homer He was aware of her work It influenced the Psalms of the Hebrews. It influenced the hymns of the Christians. The Song of Solomon is a clear echo of her style, the way that she went about the business of composing. So her genius, as well as the stories and the words her style, was copied, or her style influenced poets and writers who came after her. And it's all... ...on account of, I think, the personalised way in which she writes about her goddess. You know, she wants Inanna to take her over, to possess her, to destroy her, to make her one. She and the goddess to become one thing. There's something about the passion that's in her work, that's in her creation... that, ...that led people to try and preserve what she had going on. At some stage, she offered Sargon, her collected works... And she had at the top in the frontispiece, if you like, my king. Something has been created that no one has created before. She was aware of what she had done. There's a glimpse of, I don't know, pride, vanity. There, something has been created that no one has created before, and it was me what done it. <laughs> you know, it's that that, that emotions there. It's always important to know that some of her work is not her, her own creation She's She is carrying on a tradition of remembering old stories Stories that are already old That's why we have the stories that we have From the Old Testament and the rest It's because people recognised that there was wisdom in these stories That had to be remembered And so for a long time they would just have been passed by word of mouth Learned by rote and passed on down through the generations and then by the time you get to people like in Heduanna there's the ability to make permanent hard copy record of those stories and so that process of remembering is turned from something that people did with their brains to something that they could do with their hands but like all writers, all storytellers she was able to draw upon works that were already old by the time she heard about them one of the oldest known Stories is the epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was a real person. He was a king. He was a king of the city of Uruk, not far from Ur. Uruk is where Abraham, the great patriarch of the Old Testament, comes from. Uruk. It was from Uruk that he left with his people because God had promised them the ownership of a promised land. And God had told him that he would be the, that his his descendants would populate a new promised land. So he comes out of Uruk. Well, so did Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh did not write the epic of Gilgamesh. It was written about him. But nonetheless, Gilgamesh is the first named person from history. Inheduanna is the first named writer. We know that she was writing. Gilgamesh is the first named person from history. And he goes in search of the meaning of life. That's the driving force of the narrative. There's also a story of a flood that kills everything and everyone except a single family who build an ark. But that story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, is older than the Old Testament. So the story of Noah and the ark comes or is inspired by something older, which is to see the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh wants eternal life but finds that the gods have kept it for themselves. There's a line from the epic which runs, O Gilgamesh, this was the meaning of your dream. You were given the kingship. Such was your destiny. Everlasting life was not your destiny. That was the kind of material that Enheduanna had to draw upon.
1: It's fascinating that literary works that old are still around. Yes, that you still know and read them.
0: Yeah, they're echoing down from thousands of years ago, that's right. And just because they were written down at some point, four or five thousand years ago, we don't know how long they were just recited. We don't know the, the original inspiration, but they were, they were known to matter, they were understood to matter. The greatest of the Assyrian kings, who came later, was Ashurbanipal. And Ashurbanipal had a library built in his city at Nineveh, In fact, the creation of his library was his proudest achievement. And when the ruins of the library at Nineveh were excavated in the 19th century, yet more tablets were found, and in amongst them was Ashurbanipal's copy of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And within the epic, you're right, there's all these echoes of older stories. The backstory to Sargon the Great has it that, in secret, my mother conceived me, giving birth to me while hiding. Into a basket of rushes she set me, and sealed the lid with tar. Into the river she cast me, but the water did not rise over me. Now, where have you heard that before? You know, that's the, that's the story of Moses. So it's, it's by this process, it's by this practice, by people like in Hedwana this faithful remembering and recording of ancient stories, generation after generation, that those stories have come down to us. In in her moment, is just a first person that we know about who was part of that endless, endless process of remembering and recording, and remembering and recording the stories that eventually bleed into history itself. You know, that's why I think if the story of the world in a hundred moments has to have or is to have a beginning, it can start with her. Where
1: is Ur in today's world?
0: Ur. You are Ur. It was in the civilization known as Sumer, in the land of Mesopotamia. In modern terms, the, the site is about 200 miles southeast of Baghdad. Uh,
1: so in Iraq?
0: So it's in Iraq. Yeah. Imagine that. Iraq is a, is a place that for many people alive today, certainly in the West, you know, Baghdad has become a, a frightening place, an idea of a, of a place dominated by terrorists. But, you know, ba- Baghdad is one of the cities that is in that part of the world where the deepest roots of civilization are. You know you're back there in the territory of Babylon, and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You know that's all there in that part of the world. By the time of Enheduanna, I suppose you're right. It's important to think about that. Ur was already old. You know she wasn't there at the building of, of Ur. It has roots going back at least five thousand years. You know so so by Enheduanna's time, it's already at least hundreds of years old, and at some point the Euphrates River one of the two rivers that is the making of Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers. At one stage, the Euphrates River was close by the walls of Ur, and there's record of a dreadful flood that destroyed the first city, wiped away in one of those events that kept people or made people certain that the forces of nature were to be personified in the form of gods and goddesses. And for a long time, scholars thought that it must be the flood that was remembered in the Noah story or, or in the epic of Gilgamesh. But in more recent times, scholars have drifted away from that idea. It's just that that part of the world was afflicted by devastating floods again and again and again. And so that the, the religion that kicked up in that part of the world with gods and goddesses like Inanna and Nana, it fostered a kind of gloomy, pessimistic religion. There was this understanding that men and women would come together and create order out of chaos, but all the time, at the whim of the gods, there in the form of the flood or the storm or whatever, the gods would come and undo the work of men. And that's a recurrent theme. You know, eventually you get to stories like the Tower of Babel, where the rich and powerful decide that they're so great now that they can build a tower up to heaven and be like gods. I mean, that's, a, that's an idea that's out there now. You know, the technocrats are getting to the idea of, of imagining themselves to be little gods above the rest of us. You know, and the, their Tower of Babel is, is artificial intelligence and, and the concept of living forever by uploading their intelligence and their consciousness to the to the internet and then downloading it later on into cybernetic robots. So that, that's a recurrent idea that people will eventually get rich enough and powerful enough that they'll behave like gods. And what does God do at that point? He wipes it clean. He sends the flood or, the, or he sees the building of the tower and he knocks it down and he scatters the people once again. I mean, that's, a, that's been a recurrent theme in the stories that we have told each other and that we have remembered for thousands and thousands of years. And we, we remember those themes because they're important. And just as the stories are remembered and repeated, so the events and the tendencies of humankind are repeated again and again and again. That's why it's worth paying attention to those stories. That's why it's worth remembering someone like Enheduanna.
1: Humans had been developing for thousands of years, but when writing began, did it speed up the process of learning and accelerate civilization?
0: Yes, I think so. it's, it's one of those um, it's one of those shifts, isn't it? It's, a, it's one of those paradigm shifts that, that science historian Thomas Kuhn writes about. Maybe there's a nominated storyteller in a family, in a tribe who dedicates some of his or her time to remembering the important stories, remembering the stories that pass on the wisdom the accumulated wisdom of the tribe but of course it's only one person at a time is remembering which makes the stories very vulnerable if something happens to that person before they've had the chance to pass on the stories then potentially all is lost but with the advent of writing suddenly you can make as many records of the story as you want and everyone can have a copy potentially anyone and everyone can see the story instead of having to go and consult the storyteller And then it's like that until the coming of the printing press. You know, which Gutenberg and the Bible and all the rest. Then you've got, rather than each copy having to be painstakingly manually created in a clay tablet or with pen and ink on a sheet of parchment, you've now got the potential with the printing press to make hundreds of copies, thousands of copies. And the information goes out. Then you've got the coming of the internet and the <laughs> world wide web. You know, it's, it's all these, it's all these big steps that are taken. But yes, one of the first very big steps, one of the first paradigm shifts, was the coming of writing. And it's with reference to writing that we get the start of history. Order out of chaos, farmers, great cities and civilizations onward march. 282 laws carved into basalt set in stone for everyone to see, making the rule of law possible, linking the ancient past with the 21st century. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast, And to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. And to build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening, and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book, it's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by All Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.